Chapter 4 Spiritual Gifts and How to Find Them In the twelfth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and often in Paul's writings, the church is represented as the body of which Christ is the head. As the head directs the body, and through it gives expression to its will, so Christ expresses his will through the church, which is his body. Every believer is united to and becomes a member of the body of Christ at conversion. Each member has some function to perform, just as the hand or eye has in the physical body. To every man his work. Since each member has some function to perform, he also has some gift. The great head of the church does not expect the members to serve without a capacity for service, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Every believer is bound to believe that he has some spiritual gift, even if he has not discovered it, or others think and say that he has none. God says he has, and that settles it. The humblest believer will find God's promise is true if he is willing to wait, work, and pray. When Dwight L. Moody was examined for church membership, one of the deacons went home and told his family that, of all the people whom he had ever examined, young Moody was about the most unpromising. Events proved that God's promises are more reliable than a deacon's judgment. The spiritual gifts that believers receive are not of their own selection, but are such as God chooses to confer upon them, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11 and verse 18. No member has a right to be proud of his gifts, any more than an eye has a right to feel superior to the hand or foot. Neither should one member envy another's gifts, seeing that each one has just what God has seen fit to bestow upon him. Each one has more than he deserves, and doubtless more than he faithfully uses. Spiritual gifts are not conferred on us for our benefit, but for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 Too often this is forgotten many a feeble church has enough unemployed talent in its membership to make it a mighty spiritual power if only its members would exercise their gifts 1 many christians seriously question whether they have any spiritual gift and the devil encourages them in this belief so long as he can keep them inactive in the master's service they give him little trouble as a rule, this notion arises from the fact that they have never attempted any Christian work. They have never tried earnestly to meet any spiritual need, and so they do not know what they can do. A duck would never know it could swim if it did not attempt it. In the writer's first pastorate, he asked several brethren to lead a meeting during the week of prayer. All consented but one. He expressed great willingness but pleaded that he was utterly unable to speak in public. He said his wife and mother agreed that he could not do it. Soon, conversions began to occur, and occasionally one of the converts was asked to sit on the platform with the pastor and open the meeting. One night, in response to an invitation to accept Christ, an aged woman and her little grandson arose, holding each other by the hand. Their ages were nine and sixty-nine. A few nights later, the little boy was asked to sit with the pastor and lead the meeting. He announced to him, read a selection of scripture, and then prayed.
He was small for his age, but very mature, and he had a real gift of prayer. He seemed to forget where he was and pleaded so earnestly for the lost that the whole audience was moved to tears. Ungodly men came forward to confess their sins and accept Christ as their Savior. It was the most effective service we had held. At the close, the brother, who thought he had no gift of speech, came to me and asked for the privilege of leading the service the next night. If a little nine-year-old could lead a meeting like that, he would attempt it, even if he made a fool of himself. The next night, he led the service in a masterly way, and I never heard him complain again that he had no gift of speech. It is a great mistake to suppose that all spiritual gifts are necessarily gifts of speech. By no means. What a misfortune it would be if the body of Christ were all a mouth. Let it never be forgotten that the eye, ear, hand, and foot are just as important as the mouth. Romans chapter 12 verses 6 through 15 shows what a great variety of gifts the Spirit confers on the members of the body. Among them are cheerfulness, hatred of evil, patience in suffering, prayerfulness, and hospitality. The fact is that many spiritual gifts are not recognized as such. About two years ago, I was at a football game between Yale and Princeton. In the grandstands were nearly 20,000 people. Directly behind me sat a young lady accompanied by a gentleman. She was one of those healthy, happy girls who carry sunshine with them wherever they go. Whenever a good play was made, she expressed her enthusiasm most cheerfully. Finally, a Yale man caught the ball and, making a fine end run, ran down the field in triumph. Springing to her feet, she threw up her hat, coat, and everything else that was loose and shouted, Oh, I'm so glad I was born. The young man seemed equally glad, and I am frank to confess that I shared his sentiments. Such splendid enthusiasm! What would it be worth to the cause of Christ? How it would inspire a church, put new life into a dead prayer meeting, or make even drudgery seem delightful. You may not have the gift of enthusiasm, but perhaps you have the courage to attempt hard things, a patience that never tires, a contagious cheerfulness, the ability to make others see things as you do, or the gift of appreciating other people's good qualities, which is one of the finest of all. You certainly have some gift, for God says so. 2. How can one ascertain what his gifts are? By going to work for Christ. As a rule, no one knows what gifts he possesses until he begins to use them. I was connected with the International Christian Workers Association a few years ago. This brought me into contact each year with hundreds of Christian workers whom God had signally blessed in some particular way. I learned the history of many of these people, and the story was practically the same in almost every instance. They had seen some crying need in their community and tried in vain to get someone else to meet it. Timidly and in a small way, they had taken up the work themselves. God blessed their labors and gave them such joy and success in the work that eventually they relinquished all other business and devoted their lives to it. Few of them suspected that they had any special gift for the work. They probably would never have known it had they not been moved with compassion for someone's need. I once wrote a leaflet, Will You Go or Send? It suggested that, as in wartime when men could not go, they often sent a substitute. So the Christian, who could not go to the foreign field as a missionary, should try to send a substitute.
By much prayer and some sacrifice, almost anyone could support one of those native preachers who can be supported for $30 a year. A woman in a destitute part of the West wrote me that she wanted a substitute but was too poor to have one. However, if I would send her some of those leaflets, she would try to interest others and perhaps they could jointly support one. In a few weeks, she wrote that she had organized a missionary society with a hundred members, which has been supporting native preachers in the foreign field ever since. She probably did not suspect she had the organizing gift, but found she did. I am firmly convinced that if any Christian will take up the first case of spiritual need that presents itself, endeavors to meet it and continue doing so, it will not be long before he will find that he has a real gift for some spiritual work. He should not complain about his gift and wish it were something else. God knew what he was doing when he conferred it, and if one exercises his gift vigorously and cheerfully, he will find that there is untold joy and blessing to be found therein. Unless we employ our gifts, they will be taken from us, for the law which governs all our faculties is this, use them or lose them. In his early life, well-known atheist Charles Darwin was fond of poetry and passionately fond of music. He became interested in natural science and eventually devoted his life to it. In his last years, he testified that his scientific studies had so completely changed his tastes that he no longer cared for poetry, and music caused him positive torture. In other words, he had lost certain gifts by disuse. Because of this law, it is not strange that Paul so often urges Timothy to stir up the gift that is in him. God forbid that any member of Christ's body should lose his gift and become a nearsighted eye that cannot see very far away, a defective ear that cannot hear heaven's music, or a withered arm that is practically useless. Finally, let us covet, or as the revised version has it, desire earnestly the best gifts. We have no right to envy others' gifts. We must desire for ourselves the best gifts, pray for them and expect them. There may be a difference of opinion about the best gifts, but I would prefer the gift of prayer. I believe it is a far higher gift than preaching, and I see no reason why this gift is not open to all. Let us all covet it and expect it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37 verse 4.